0: As we come to this portion of Ruth, we can, by chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and now into chapter 4, certainly together, praise the Lord for what we've been seeing in the story of Ruth, of his continued mercy toward us And I was going to say even when, but I think it might be better stated to say we could praise the Lord for his continued mercies toward us, particularly when we try to control his purposes in our lives. That is, under the assumption most oftentimes we do try to control his purposes for our lives through a array of strategies that we ourselves put together as what we think to be master builders, but oftentimes making poor choices. Last week, for example, in chapter 3, if you weren't able to be with us or you were by way of remembrance, in chapter 3, we witnessed Naomi's work of interference or what we labeled last week, Naomi's overreach in God's plan for Ruth and Boaz. Again, she was energized and excited with the story of Ruth when she came back. But then again, over a course of roughly the entire harvest, which the entire harvest season is somewhere in the ballpark of 7 to 10 months. So during this time, indeed, Naomi is spiritually energized, as we saw you know, in her confession of chapter 2, verse 20. She's praising the Lord. She's excited. However, from there, seven to ten months go by somewhere in that neighborhood of watching Ruth and Boaz interact. And then, seemingly, Ruth was not making the move that Naomi sensed she needed to make. And so, Naomi, as we watch through chapter 3, manipulated the circumstances hatched what she thought to be a strong and well thought out plan, spice Ruth up a little bit, send her over to Boaz and see what happens if Ruth can close the deal. Before, again, I cautioned as we look through the text and we pay careful detail to what's going on with Naomi, her strategy, Ruth and Boaz, before we get carried away with any narrative, and we begin to label an individual or critique them too harshly, I've encouraged us all along since the beginning with Elimelech in chapter 1 and his choice to go down to Moab in the first place, it is a word of caution that the way the stories are crafted are human stories. They're very real. They have human experience and tendency written all over them. So to be fair, each and every pass as we see the shade of a particular character being colored for us, some darker, some lighter, some very ambiguous and gray, dependent upon their service in the story, as we read and critique them, we ought indeed be fair. That oftentimes as you and I together and we consider our life lived before the Lord, each of us in various ways want God's ways to be clear. I imagine if I were to ask a raise of hands, I won't and I don't want raise of hands. But if I were to ask, who in here wants God's ways to be clear? You know, pretty straightforward. Go on from there and I say, "Who of us wish his paths to be straight? Or who enjoys a good twist?" Not too many. How many, each of us, in this portion, wherever we are at, in providence, in time, with our lives, who of us, facing uncertainty, wishes to be able to fast forward to the outcome? Again, looking at Naomi and Elimelech, we can critique, and it's, it's right because they do serve a role within the narratives to be critiqued. That's the point. But before we, with too high a brow, move on, we should unite to the characters within the text, recognizing that each of us want to force opportunities that we think will be most beneficial to us. Therein lies yet another examination to consider what is, in the term beneficial, what is beneficial for me? This is at stake within the story. We see each character considering that aspect of what is most beneficial for me. We're faced with the same temptations, same challenges, and same questions in our lives. And the calculation needs to be careful. Most importantly, it needs to be filled with biblical wisdom and knowledge. What is it? That God has for me for what it is that he has for me is indeed beneficial now and this is the stake where the narrative begins to shift a bit as we move from Naomi as we're looking at Naomi through chapter 3 and her interactions or her setting Ruth and Boaz in a difficult situation the character of Boaz emerges yet again Now again, we can't remove Boaz and say, yeah, but Naomi's wrestling with all of these things. She wants to fast forward some outcomes. I understand her situation. She's facing unknown circumstances that she wants to resolve. So I sense that. But Boaz is kind of, you know, he's straightforward. He doesn't have as much skin in the game. Not as much at stake. So no wonder his character emerges so clearly. He's just kind of typically how we read our Old Testament text. Many of the hall of faith or the saints of the old testament seem to walk by faith we just say well it just makes sense that they would rather than joining into the story and recognizing also with boaz he wants to see a particular outcome as well he's not removed and like well okay Sarah, Sarah, whatever happened to ruth happens to ruth well no wonder he comes through so strongly he doesn't really care about the outcomes no that would be unfair as we'll see in chapter four He certainly does want to see a particular outcome. He too, like Naomi, because this is going to be from three to four, the contrast, and then within four, we're about to see yet another contrast emerge, and Boaz standing clear by faith, because he too faces temptation to manipulate the circumstances. It's not just Naomi, and it's not just Ruth, it also is Boaz in this network and web of relationships who wishes to manipulate circumstance, if he could. What is the situation that I'm alluding to? You know it if you've read the story before or if you've heard it preached or taught at one point. He wants to marry Ruth. That's the situation. Would he like to fast forward to the outcome? Sure. He's human, isn't he? Would he like to know and have it locked up and settled? Sure. Is he facing a temptation, therefore, because of those urges to manipulate the situation? Sure. He's human. He wants to guarantee that he can marry Ruth. But the contrast between Naomi and Boaz that emerges is that Boaz sees and views the situation with biblical wisdom. It's not an absence of care or concern or hope or desire. But they don't rule any particular strategy to sure up an outcome. He sees the situation with biblical wisdom. He recognizes there's more at stake here than just me and my desires. He recognizes this is not going to be straightforward, Ruth. Ruth. Oh, you must not love me. You know, Maybe something along those lines. If it was, it, would just, it is as easy. Let's just run off, uh, I don't know, uh, to Egypt together. No. no, it's not that easy. It, it, it's, it, it's not that straightforward. There's more at stake here. And I think that that immediately puts forward to each one of us. As we've seen throughout, each character represented in the one narrative, each pass in the road. When decisions are being made within the text and the lives of those who are within it, we recognize there's always a greater effect that follows from our decisions than just our own. It affects others. And this is to be seen proactively by those with biblical wisdom. Notice the situation that is not a simple matter. In chapter 3, it's verse 12 13 this is how boyce begins his initial response ruth there um let's see he's speaking in verse 11 and now my daughter do not fear i will do for you all that you ask for my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman and now it is true that i am a redeemer yet there is a redeemer nearer than i in other words this is not straightforward we can't just walk down to the magistrate and make it happen Uh, There, there's yes, but there's more 13 remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, look at, look at Boaz, then good. But how is that most beneficial for you? He's saying it's most beneficial to Ruth to be obedient. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. In other words, he does want to see this happen. But there is constraint. So then they end the little scene there with his comment to her, lie down until the morning. In other words, let's just go to bed and get some rest. So then from here, we're arriving this morning. We're moving closer into chapter 4 now, recognizing the greater purposes of God and his providence for Naomi. Ruth and Boaz. I want to step back and kind of view the text a little bit broader and then we'll handle, we'll have one last, I believe, one last sermon together in the book of Ruth. And this morning I want to step back as we walk through the text and see it from this vantage point and I, what I think we're instructed in in the first half of chapter four. So this morning what we're going to see is all the way up through verse six of what was read and then 7, I think, was also read within there. Where we're going to see is kind of verse 6 and 7. And then our last portion of the passage will be for us um, next time we're together. Because there's a few things at work here, and I want to address the first half of chapter 4 of what we are being offered in the story. And that is this. Most broadly speaking, in the first portions of chapter 4, following the conversation that Ruth and Boaz have just had following from there we see the activity of Boaz and it is instructive for our benefit and it is so in this way most broadly speaking here in chapter four we are being instructed in the ordinary pathway of blessing I want to in my um, uh, notes here to you I don't know if this is beneficial to you or not. If I am trying to manipulate you or brainwash you right now to create an image in your brain, it is this. You see the term ordinary in your mind right now, don't you? I guess. No, just kidding. You see the term ordinary, and you're double underlining ordinary, or you're highlighting whichever way you desire. In other words, you're not letting it pass. What we're being instructed here through the individual Boaz is the ordinary pathway of blessing. I want to show you how it is not mystical to be uh, blessed of the Lord. It isn't some sneaky strategy that you need to pay $7.99 and mail in your, your donations and your gifts and somebody will bless something and mail it back to you. It's very ordinary, the pathway of blessing in your life with the Lord. And that is, in other words, the ordinary pathway of blessing as seen through the life of Boaz is simply this, and then we'll break it down from there. Boaz facilitates God's providential kindness through, now, now, now stay seated, I don't want anyone to fall over. This, this will blow your mind. Boaz facilitates God's providential kindness through, are you ready? Obedience. Right? Obedience. In other words, this is the ordinary pathway of blessing before the Lord. is a life of obedience. It's that simple. It's that straightforward. It's that human. Look at verses 1 and 2, and notice this is the global view of the passage. The ordinary path which Boaz takes in this conundrum, in this situation. Again, I introduce to you that he does have vested interest. What stands out then is how he sees that pathway develop. One is to manipulate, be sneaky with. Shade the situation in order to gain your outcome. That would be the non ordinary way of blessing. This is simply the ordinary pathway of obedience. For one, now Boaz had gone up. Uh, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken. I read that for you earlier in verse 12. Ruth, there is someone that is closer than I. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. Here he is in the scene. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took 10 of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, before we develop the text of what takes place in the conversation, and what develops here is simply this. The ordinary pathway is simply obedience. And I want to paint this picture for you from chapter 4, 1 and 2. You notice what Boaz does here in the normal or ordinary obedient thing to do. And that is he pursues the closer redeemer in the situation. It's obedient. It's lawful. There is a process that needs to take place. And Boaz honors the process lawfully. He sets up a proper and lawful engagement with the elders. This is how it's to be done. No, let's leave tonight and go to Egypt. I'm not saying Ruth is saying that. You get the idea. And Boaz says no. It's not because he doesn't want to marry Ruth. It is... He wants to obey the Lord. And in this situation of the first foot forward of an ordinary human, that is a Christian endeavor of honoring the Lord in their life, is marked first by this attitude of obedience. Boaz continues to display his worthy character. He's been noted as such throughout the narrative of story. That Boaz is a worthy character. And it's exemplified here in verse 1 and 2 as he approaches the other redeemer. That is, what we see here in Boaz is that his love for Ruth and his great care for Naomi does not rival his love for God. Ruth indeed is special to Boaz, but she is not above the Lord. His situation, neither does it compromise this situation of which he desires to see an outcome. It does not compromise his delight in the law. You see, he's not jettisoning the law. He delights in the law of the Lord. Even above his love of Ruth. And this is no you know, hugely staggering truth that we're developing here about a believer How amazing that Boaz loves God more than Ruth. This is simply the ordinary pathway for a believer to love the Lord with all his heart. This is the ordinary path of blessing. For Boaz, he hears in the law. I trust you do as well. He hears in the law meaningfully as we see his character on display god's call through the law to obey me by loving me love me by obeying me this is the summary of my law and boaz does just that he loves the lord and he displays it through obedience we can't be sneaky I can't pretend I don't know about this other Redeemer. We need to speak to this Redeemer. We need to call for the elders and do nothing shady here to get away with something because there is something fundamentally more important to both of us. And that is the law of the Lord and our love of Him. This continues to display the worthy character of of Boaz, who has much to gain in this situation. Consider the other aspect of Boaz as this this pathway, the ordinary pathway of blessing. The ordinary pathway calls the Christian to obedience, and the ordinary pathway of the blessing of the Lord calls the believer to sacrifice. Again, that is a part of our life in an ordinary way sacrifice, certain aspects of our dreams, certain aspects of our desires, certain aspects of our careers, certain aspects of our family, so on and so forth again and again and again. The ordinary pathway is a pathway of sacrifice. It isn't to be amazing to each of us, grander stories of sacrifice, but more so a question of or a confrontation to each of us when we lack all sacrifice. Sacrifice is a mark of the life of a Christian. So we see it with Boaz and how so in verse 3 and 4, consider the second aspect of the ordinary path of blessing is the aspect of sacrifice. Look at verse 3 and 4. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi who has come back from the country of Moab is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, pay pay close attention to exactly what he is saying here. Verse 4. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it but if you will not tell me that I may know for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you simply put here if you were to to pay close attention to three and four you recognize what Boaz is doing here is extremely sacrificial he mentions here, which will come back at the end of the narrative, but up front in his first engagement with this unnamed redeemer, he only mentions the field at stake. This, as you can imagine, would make this situation seem absolutely desirable to any redeemer. You see, Boaz, in other words, is not shading the facts of the situation to present it in its absolutely darkest light in order to manipulate the outcome for the Redeemer. You see, here, you, you can see it as a human being, right? The situation, the possibilities, your desire, and in the intended outcome is to have this parcel of land for the sake of a limeleck, To do your work as a redeemer, primarily you're in love with Ruth. So there is all kinds of things at stake here. And here's the man who lawfully goes before you in the exchange. What would your temptation be in speaking to this other man about the situation? Would it be to put the field in the best light? Or would it be to maybe say some sort of complaint like, you know, it's no good. There's no water that really gets down there anyway. I don't think you would want it. I mean, I can't imagine anybody who would. It's really not that great of a land. I mean, it's really kind of small if you think about it. If you go over there, you're going to see how it really doesn't, you know. What would would your temptation be in the situation? Again, we might glamorize Boaz. It's like, he just puts it forward. He's a good guy. Recognize he has much at stake. He doesn't want this guy to redeem the land. He doesn't want him to play the part. He wants to do it. And yet something more fundamentally speaks to Boaz as a believer. And that is obedience to the Lord is more important to Boaz than manipulating the situation to gain his own return. He doesn't even shade the facts of the situation to present it in its worst light in order to manipulate the outcome, the situation for Boaz. And this is hard to believe. It's hard to to picture that this is the case in such a short exchange. And we'll see it fill out as we proceed. But we must receive that Boaz is a man who sees the situation is not about him and his own interest how oftentimes we face perplexing situations and we work only, if not mainly, but exclusively from the vantage point that this situation that I hear of, the first gut response I have is for me and my own interest in the exchange at all. It is the mode of operation. It's instinctual. It's that aspect of sin that is driven by self preservation. It's instinctual. What are you saying? I'm filtering and like, what's my best advantage here in this exchange for me? Let alone in something as massive as a desire to marry a young woman with whom you are in love with. And yet stands Boaz sacrificially offering the field to the extended redeemer. Boaz is willing to absorb personal loss in order to do what is good and right. That's fundamental to the mark of a believer. Again, we can't fall to the ground and be amazed by the Spirit's work in the life of Boaz. But stand back and see that this is the Lord's will for all of His people. That this is the work of God in his people, that we also would simply see situations and be willing to be obedient even when we will suffer or absorb personal loss if we do what is right and good. That has to overcome our instinctual inclinations for self-preservation. When the Lord does call and his providence is being unfolded before you, do you shrink back thinking this will cost too personally and too gravely to my own sense of good and right? From where does my sense of good and right come from? Again, in summary with Boaz here, as we see him in the ordinary pathway of blessing and bring him down where he is in the human component for each one of us, the ordinary path of blessing before the Lord, of which Boaz is committed, of which we all ought be by grace committed. In summary with Boaz, we are given a portrait of the man of Psalm 1. Simply, if we were to take Psalm 1, of which you're probably familiar, there are three things that stand out. Just reading in Psalm 1, if we were to reference it in the life of an Old Testament saint, and we see it in the actions of Boaz, consider with me just briefly this thought. Boaz delights in the law of the Lord. There is a Redeemer who is closer than I. And I need to speak with him. No, let's jettison the law. Let's do what is most advantageous to ourselves. I love you. Don't you love me? Sometimes how we might manipulate the situation in order to gain our extended outcomes. How we might take a crooked road and make it straight. Rather than by faith following the bend. Boaz fundamentally displays that he delights in the law of the Lord. Then it follows through Psalm 1 that in all that he does, he prospers. No, 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 he might not prosper at this point in the narrative. Again, don't skip to the end. He does prosper. Hey, pastor, let me tell you the story. You must be in the dark on the outcome. No, 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 I'm just, I'm keeping us from going right to the outcome. Be fair to the text. There's much at stake and risked by Boaz. But he does see as Psalm 1 intends. When delighting in the Lord. Those who are by the law obedient in love with the Lord. All that they do does prosper. Even when at face value it seems to suggest that you will absorb personal loss. In the prospering, you're gaining by losing. This is the paradigm of the gospel. As it speaks to our own flesh, our own sense of pride, our sense of works and our own justification, we're called continuously by prospering through letting go of what we thought was gain receiving it as the loss that we might be known and know the lord and all that he does indeed he prospers the third aspect simply just kind of pointing out a simple portrait of the ordinary pathway of blessing one of lawful engagement one of sacrifice on the part of boaz willing indeed to put it out there to absorb the personal loss of what he wishes to see occur. He is then standing this kind of third aspect, just three simple things that stand out from Psalm one. He is a tree firmly planted. Again, he's not driven on by manipulating, shading the truth, but putting it out there, even in its best light, to risk the most, to do what is good and right. He is this portrait of a believer in the Old covenant. He is a tree that is firmly planted. So also are God's people as they obey the law of the Lord. However, at this point in time, with Boaz firmly standing forward as a worthy individual, one who is following, again, nothing extraordinary, but the ordinary pathway of obedience there is yet another contrast. So we're leaving from Naomi in three, and now we're entering onto the stage with a new character. And this new character who stands in contrast to the worthy man of uh, Boaz is the Redeemer. Now, I want to note for you carefully here, and you'll notice through the text of chapter four, this individual, since he's been introduced in chapter, tw- or chapter three, verse 12, he is an unnamed man. Again, when we're listening to or reading carefully narrative in the Old Testament, everything plays its part. The stories are are beautifully written in such a way as to engage the mind and heart of the reader. And everything, whether it's present or it's absent, is significant to the telling of the story. Here, what we're finding out by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, is the play here is upon the idea of name establishment. That is... Uh, What is carefully being taught here with the unnamed redeemer. We step back and we recognize that when one seeks after. And I hope to prove this to you in the next couple of moments. This idea of name establishment. What is carefully being taught here is that when one seeks after a name for themselves. Again, this is a normative principle. A normative instruction. No matter where we're at. In the Old Testament or the New Testament. I submit it to you. That what is being taught here for each and every one of us through this unnamed Redeemer is that when one seeks after a name for themselves, they will ultimately remain nameless. Again, if I could say to you that what is carefully being taught here, and we'll see it in the exchange between Boaz and this unnamed Redeemer, that when one seeks after a name for themselves, they will ultimately remain nameless. In contrast, when one seeks the name of the Lord, or we could describe it as seeking the glory of the Lord in all of their endeavors... Simply put, we might say something like, when the Lord is first, as we see in obedience with Boaz, when one seeks the name or glory of the Lord in their endeavors, their name is actually established. You see the paradox everywhere, yet again in the gospel. That one seeks themselves, they ultimately remain lost. But one seeks the glory of the Lord, one is established and found the comment coming to you that kind of fills out this old testament story the idea of a name interchange or the establishing of a household how does one become well established how does one become a tree firmly planted how does their memory continue on in the lives of their posterity and it is this proverbs ten seven: the memory of the righteous will be a blessing Notice the contrast of memory, however. But the name. So again, the memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. The great contrast here in the nameless Redeemer is that the Redeemer will remain nameless because of his selfishness. Boaz will be established as he seeks the glory of the Lord. Let me show you how this is the case of what's being instructed here in the ordinary pathway of blessing. Again, seeking the glory of the Lord in our lives rather than the establishment of our own reputation and name. Notice as we begin in 4.4 yet again here with the selfishness or the selfish advantage of the unknown Redeemer. Verse 4, so I thought I would tell you of it and say... Uh, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said this, I will redeem it. Now, already right there, let me fill in just a brief backdrop to what he is actually hearing. We might be a bit removed from, again, the redemption aspect of the story as far as housing and family and so on and so forth go. Remember, this man is in the position of primary redeemer of the estate with Elimelech. Boaz here has spoken, as I already noted for you, as straightforward and sacrificially as possible. He didn't manipulate it, shade it in a way in which the guy wouldn't want it. Rather, he offers it as it stands, even so very graciously. The unnamed redeemer simply hears these words mathematical equations. This is in the hearing of the field. So you can go there in your mind right now and recognize you, you, you see what's going on here. Here's Boaz. Here are the elders who are having a seat. They're weighing in on judgment. Boaz is acting lawfully, indeed, even sacrificially to the primary redeemer. And the redeemer is just walking by doing his thing. As far as we know in the text, he's told, hey, come here, sit down for a second. I have something to tell you. So he's like, oh, okay, whatever it is he is doing, he stops, stands aside, hears from Boaz, and this is what he hears. Naomi is in a difficult situation. Now, before I go any further, consider the fact that as we're led down the narrative story, all of Bethlehem essentially knows Naomi's outcomes. They all know she came back, she's from Elimelech, she came back with this Moabitess, and they're in dire straits. They know, as far as, as we can tell throughout the story, as chatter flies, they can also know that Ruth has been in the field gleaning on behalf of Naomi. So this man is somewhat vaguely familiar with the situation. It's fair to assume. This then, as he stops, is what he hears in his ears, and this is purposely in contrast to Boaz. Naomi is in a difficult place. She needs to sell her family inheritance, the land of Elimelech, in order to have money for survival. It's quite straightforward. He hears of a field that he can get on the cheap. Anybody is in on that situation. This person's back is against the wall. They really don't have anything they can do about it, but they're liquidating a few assets. Oh, so I can get it for like a quarter of the cost? Because you know the situation of the individual who has to liquidate. Any shrewd person comes up and gives the value of the cheapest item to gain. In other words, you hear of a field that you can get on the cheap. This is what we know of the unnamed redeemer. He thinks in his mind, as we can tell through the text as it progresses, right here from the mouth of Boaz, he can receive more for his family for less of his invested money. This is what he hears. Now, again, he tells the story in the best possible light, and then at the end, he says, I will redeem it. Yes, he doesn't have to hear any more. He hears the fact there is more for his inheritance for less of his own money. It doesn't matter what Naomi's situation is. I'll take it, because it's not going to cost me very much, and it will expand my inheritance. The brief portrait here of the selfish, unnamed redeemer is a picture of a man storing up treasures on earth. I'll take it. I don't need to, need, need to know anymore. You mention a field. You mention Naomi's in a def- desperate situation. She has to offload it in order to hopefully survive. I'll take it, wrap it, we're leaving. Sounds good. And this selfish view, speaking back to Boaz, who is acting lawfully and sacrificially, is a picture of a man storing up treasures on earth. He misses the entire view of the law. He misses the eschatology of the law. In other words, he wants his blessing and return now. Rather than awaiting a full reward at the Lord's own timing. Matthew 6, I simply cite for you from Matthew 6, this word of this picture that Christ reminds us of the selfish landowner here with Boaz and Naomi, beginning in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. In contrast to that, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, as the story progresses of the selfish, unnamed redeemer who sees a person in plight and seeks to leverage for their own advancement. I don't know what makes Boaz do this. I want to think it's because he got so annoyed or so bothered or so angry at the response that was overeager by the selfish man who is seeking to gain leverage for himself in the situation. I don't really know that is the case. I want to believe that is the case. And that is, Boaz kind of takes the, what we would, I guess we could update and we could say, he kind of takes the infomercial approach. And that is this uh, kind of, but wait, there's more approach to the field discussion. Now perhaps it is, as I'm reading it, I'm hoping he suggests it because he's annoyed now with the overreaching, over-eager man who is clearly self-driven in the gaining of the land of Elimelech. He doesn't care about Naomi. There's some exchange, whatever, I'll take it, prompts Boaz to say, but wait, there's more. And it is upon this fuller disclosure that we get yet another picture Of the unnamed redeemer driven by self. Notice verse uh, 5 and 6. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi. Because he already said, I will, I'll take it, I'll redeem it. Oh, but there's more. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead. Then he clarifies yet fuller disclosure is in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. You know what you're doing here, right? As a redeemer. The day that you buy this field, I'll take it. No, no, I think you need to know you also get Ruth. The widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said. I cannot redeem it. No way. I cannot redeem it for myself. And, and here is the disclosure lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. I cannot redeem it. You see, the picture of the unnamed Redeemer is for, full, further revelation discloses that he is driven on by self-preservation through legalism. In other words, he will do what the law demands, but he will not do it from love. He will not sacrifice himself. He will not absorb loss. He will not tinker with the inheritance coming from his own in order to raise up another to take the field back. No way, I'm not going to do that. I would love to purchase the land, but I don't want anything to do with raising an inheritor to take it back. He is not sacrificially taking on another man's name, raising an inheritor through a Moabitess. One author concludes this way, the anonymity of Mr. So-and-so is telling. And it is telling in this way. There is no future in a life devoted to self and playing it safe. Here is a man who had an opportunity to redeem a desperate situation. He thought only of himself and so has been forgotten. The unnamed man drifts off into the narrative. We don't know who he was. He doesn't have any part to play in moving forward. He, much like at that bend in the road, here's a decision of sacrifice, involvement, and engagement that costs perhaps you something, but is the obedient and right thing to do. And Orpa drift off and the unnamed redeemer drift off. never to be heard from again within the narrative or the scope of Scripture. I conclude with these two points to put the weight of the text yet again back at our own feet. Two points. One, life apart from Christ is a self-centered life that is easily forgotten. Life apart from Christ is a self-centered life that is easily forgotten. Point number two, of what we see in the ordinary pathway of obedience, the ordinary pathway of blessing, is that life in Christ is a Christ-centered life. Living in obedience to God's will for His honor and His glory. Life in Christ. That is, you this morning, a believer, coming on Lord's Day to receive from His Word, is yet another point of reminder, as He speaks to each of us through His Word this morning, that life in Him is a life that has him at the center. And it isn't some vague idea that's hard to measure out or some sense of drifting that we really don't know what is going on. It is a life that acts in conformity to his stated will. If I were to ask one last question, how many of you in here know what God's will is for you? Hope to think that every single person in here would raise their hand. Because it's been declared for us, incorporated in Scripture for us. We do know his will for us. It's written on the pages of Scripture. It has Him at the center, walking by faith and obedience for His glory and His honor. That is his will for his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the life of Boaz. We thank you for the life of Ruth and Naomi. We thank you for its incorporation into Holy Scripture. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to feed our faith, that we would be those who absorb personal loss even for the sake of being obedient. Whether it be in our relationships with our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our perspective on your call on us in career, our life lived before you in family, Lord, that it would be oriented with you at the center and obedient even at the cost of sacrifice. Thank you for the ordinary work that you do through the power of your spirit, the application of your word. Thank you for this Lord's day in Christ's name, amen.
1: Amen. We're going to close just a little differently this morning. I am going to ask you to stand. We're going to return to that psalm that we did corporately a little bit ago, and we're going to finish by confessing Psalm 118. The the psalms that we've been going through in corporate worship are kind of broken down as the songs of declarative praise, and really they are songs or prayers that are offered confessionally by the people of God, and so that's what we're doing here this morning. seems like an appropriate way to end our service this morning as we work through Psalm 118. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those that hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Amen. Remember, if you were part of the child care ministry, we'll meet up here right in these front couple rows in about 10 minutes and get started with that meeting. All right, thank you. You're dismissed.